May God bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Good morning, Riverside. We're so glad you are here this morning. We are in a series called Just Ask, where we're looking to the Psalms, the songbook of Israel, to learn how to pray better, to add language to our prayer language. And one of the things I love about the Psalms is that it gives us this rich, incredible language that we can take on as if it were our own when we pray to God. But not only that, these Psalms offer a word for all of us. For every season of life, there is a word for us from the Psalms. Whether it's a time of success and prosperity, whether it's a time of doubt or a time of questions, questions like, where are you, God? How long, O Lord? Who shall I fear? Where can I go from your presence? Whatever the question, there's a song for all of us for whatever we're going through in our lives. And that in itself, folks, is a powerful, powerful reminder just how big God is, and he's big enough to handle, as we've already sang this morning, whatever may pass and whatever lies before us. Let's pray together and we'll go to the text. God, thank you for your word, for the fact that your word is living and active even today. God, we're thankful that there's a word for all of us from the Psalter, and we, we just want to hear you speak this morning. So, Father, may these words be your words, and would you give us ears to hear. It's in Jesus' name we pray, and we all say together, amen. Last month, a couple of friends and I, we did our, our yearly arrangers, composers pilgrimage, something we do every year, and we decided to do an Airbnb this last year, and it we wanted to get something not too far removed from the metro mess, and so we ended up a little over an hour from here. And we got to our place, and this place was very secluded and very unique. It looked like a, a bunker when you drove up to it in the middle of nowhere. But we had no idea how unique this place was until we got inside and found out that this was a shrine to Elvis. I think there are some pictures. I'm talking full-size Elvis heads, posters. There was a cardboard cutout of Elvis with like 127 sweat rags, some that were claimed to have been Elvis's. Others were the impersonator of Elvis sweat rags. Man, it was, and our host was like an endless repository of worthless Elvis knowledge. And she was like me when it comes to Batman and game shows. I mean, she knew it all. And, you know, we knew that we would never forget this experience, but, uh, yeah, there we are with Elvis. Uh, lo and behold, when I left, I just couldn't get away from Elvis. Came across a story the other day about an Elvis impersonator. And I don't know how if you know this or not, but Elvis impersonation is an industry. Like, Seriously. Tons of people do this. And you might not think that a particular Elvis impersonator would catch your eye, but there was one that I was reading about that stood out from the crowd, not because he looked more like Elvis than anybody else, or he sounded more like Elvis, or he choreographed his hips more like Elvis. He believed that Elvis spoke to him. 
Sometimes it was through his son who was a medium to rock and roll stars of years past. To cut a long story short, he sold everything he had and he moved to the West Coast and he was gearing up on what he claimed was Elvis's advice to him in a message or through a note he had received to go compete in the world championship of Elvis impersonators. Elvis told him he would win. Well, he didn't get past the preliminary round. And at one point, I mean, he just kept going to convention after convention after contest after contest. And finally, somebody asked him, why do you keep doing this when you keep on going and losing? Makes me feel good. Gives me fulfillment. It satisfies me. For me, it's my reality. It's the truth. We're desperate for purpose in our lives, aren't we? We're looking for something to satisfy us, to keep us going. That guy had some sort of purpose, but man, it never satisfied him. He gave everything he had to succeed, but he got nothing from it. We face similar choices, don't we? We all want purpose and satisfaction in life. And today, we're going to come to a psalm that will continue to reveal what true satisfaction is as we look at it today. This is one of those psalms that's kind of a mashup. It opens, as you heard read a minute ago, sounding like this could be a lament. That's a language we need to cultivate more, folks, because we don't speak the language of lament very well. We would prefer it to be sunshine and daffodils, but the reality is that's not always the case. He opens, but it doesn't stay in lament mode, and we'll see in a minute just what he does. And this is a psalm that was important to the early church. Psalm 63 was a psalm that was used at the beginning of worship to signify the beginning of the morning song, and it was used for lots and lots of years to begin the mood of morning song. David begins this prayer for help. A person who comes to the sanctuary from a dangerous world. And if you look in your Bible or on your device, there's a little superscription that says he was in the desert. Maybe he was there because he was running away from King Saul Maybe there was something else going on. Maybe there was somebody trying to hunt him or kill him. Whatever it was, he was fleeing from something. And in the midst of it, he prays. And put yourself in David's shoes for a minute. God's promised that you're going to be king. You're on the run. You're in a desert with an angry king, perhaps, and his army looking for you. What do you think your prayer would be? God, I'm thirsty, I'm hungry, I'm being chased. Give me food, water, protection. Satisfy my needs, God. I think I would be tempted to pray that. But David doesn't pray that way, does he? I want to do a little work with the English language this morning. Mostly I just want to look at two words. I want to look at hungry and thirsty. How do we use these words every day? Oh, I'm starving. I'm parched. Are we really parched? Are we really starving? Sometimes it takes a picture, a stark image, a startling picture of a third world country where they can't get clean water or to see an emaciated child who hasn't had food in weeks for us to think, yeah, I really don't know what hunger is. 
We have to consume our two and a half liters of water every day. We're beginning to understand that there's a large portion of our world that doesn't have water. That's a problem. And maybe there's something for us to be doing about that, and this psalm might speak to that. But I want us to look at hungry and thirsty in a little different light, in the light of God's presence. So Psalm 63, as we've already read, verses 1 and 2. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in the dry and parched land where there is no water. I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Conjures up quite an image for us. He's exhausted. He's tired. He's thirsty. God, you are my God. I seek you. That word seek is the word that means like the night searching for the morning to come. My whole being longs for you. He doesn't say, God, you're my God. Earnestly, I seek safety. My body longs for water and food. No, he doesn't do that, does he? More than any of those things, David wants God. He is desperate for God. He knows God. We know this clearly from the way he begins the prayer. And because we know the whole David story, he's the man after God's own heart, right? But he's still desperate for him. And David knows that God is seeking after him as well. David knew his body had a physical need. He knew he was in a dry and weary land without water, like he says in verse 1. But he didn't stop with his needs. His needs pointed him back to God. He knew that without God, not even food or water would satisfy him. He could have, he could have water and food, but he wants something better. He wants to be satisfied. He knew God could only do that. What happens when you become dehydrated? Doug and I played golf last summer on the hottest day of the year. That was smart. We consumed like 26 bottles of water between the two of us, and we were still thirsty. We get faint. We get weary. The psalmist is lonely. The only solution in this case is for David to behold God. Not just him, but the land he's in is thirsty. He's parched like a a West Texas lake that hasn't had water in who knows how long. He's lonely. He feels an absence of God in his soul, in his gut. I think about my grandfather who told me stories about his youth working a farm. He would say that when it hasn't rained for a while, it means the loss of work. And the loss of work week after week and the sun beats you down without a cloud in sight. No one can understand really that dryness that David is talking about. One translator says, my God, I'm as totally dried up like the farms were during the worst summer drought. But just like the farmers don't close down their farms and close down their churches when there aren't any crops, the psalmist goes on in the sanctuary, in God's presence, the place of worship. 
one can find a break from, as one old hymn writer said in his hymn, Beneath the Cross of Jesus, a break from the burning of the noontide heat and the burden of the day. David, this man after God's own heart, his physical thirst was just as deep as his his spiritual thirst. His physical thirst was just like his deep desire for God. You ever notice how God tends to speak to people's souls when they're in the wilderness? Moses, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days. There's something about the wilderness, the desert, that seems to strip us of our defenses and reveal us vulnerable before God. Verse 3. Because your love, and that word love is a loaded word. It's not just love. It's steadfast love, perpetual love, unfailing love. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. What a confession. Your steadfast love is better than life. The psalmist seems to say that God's faithfulness is more valuable to him than his own existence. This characteristic of God, this chesed, is that that Hebrew word that's so different than other words for love. It's that characteristic of God that moves David to call him my God. It's God's unfailing love in which the psalms put their trust and hope for salvation of our lives. And just for a moment, this trust becomes, just for a moment, this pure adoration that leaves oneself behind as any participant in the reason for adoration. David remembers, as the Psalms call us to do, he remembers the past experiences. Remember where his, his thirst has been quenched in the past. It's been in the sanctuary, the holy place, the temple, in the presence of God in worship where David has seen the power and the glory, where God has revealed himself to David so that he was quenched, his thirst. He talked about thirst back in verse 1, and now he talks about hunger. What's the result of his hunger and thirst now? His soul is satisfied. His self, his soul, his whole being, his inner life is fully fed with the richest of foods. I love how Eugene Peterson translated because it resonates with me and maybe you can amen me here. Peterson says, it's satisfied with the best cut of prime rib and gravy. (laughs) Amen. And that resonates with me. And what does it say next? David says, because he has beheld the awesome presence and power of the Lord, he will worship without ceasing. David's worship centers on this unfailing love of God, which is a greater good than life itself. This love, this loving kindness, this grace is what moves David to worship. 
And the text goes on to say that as he lives, he will continue to worship with the fruit of his lips. He'll keep on singing. He'll sing, the text literally says, with lips of glad God songs. He will sing. And he'll keep his hands lifted in worship, expecting God to return them filled with blessing. Not all of us are wired, though, like David in a musical way, are we? When our natural response is to sing. For some of us, music isn't our go-to outlet. We even hear some who go as far to say, I can't sing. My voice isn't pretty. I'm intimidated. No one's singing around me. Why should I? Scripture calls us. God invites us and calls us to sing. It's not just a mental, passive activity when we come together in this place. God created us body, soul, and spirit. One of my favorite music writers that I read was a lady named Helen Kemp. And Helen Kemp would say in these workshops, and she died at age 96 doing these workshops, she says, body, mind, soul, and voice. It takes the whole person to sing and rejoice. Someone says, well, I sing in my heart. I'm glad you sing in your heart, but God deserves more than that, and he wants more than that. He doesn't need it, but he wants the fruit of our lips. Times have changed, haven't they? We could go around the room and talk about how we were raised in houses that sang. We are less and less a singing culture, and more and more a listening culture. In an American Idol world, we have become judges of everyone's performance. We move from being singers to listeners, and finally we move from being participants to consumers and self-appointed critics. And that makes us suffer when we sing. Instead of praise and song being understood as this sacrificial gift we are blessed to offer God with, it becomes this human performance that's subject to critical analysis. What did you think of the singing this morning? A well-respected theologian named Donald Hustad, who was a hymnologist and church musician, once wrote that somehow 40% of churchgoers seem to have picked up the idea that singing in church is for the singers, when the truth is singing is for the believers. The relevant question is not, do you have a good voice? The question is, do you have a song? David had a song. And because it was his most natural response to God's unfailing love, He sang, and so should we. God never says, if you can sing, sing. He just says, sing. People are always tagging me in these articles and videos on Facebook, and there was one, I should have saved it, but I didn't, but it was a three-year-old girl, and she said, I love you, Lord, and I lift my noise. pretty profound. God wants all of us to lift our noise. If we don't do ourselves any favors in what we call rooms like this sometimes, we call it an auditorium. And what does that room imply? 
a place where someone comes to observe or listen. Your, your leaders want this church to not be a place where you come and observe worship. We want you as a disciple of Jesus Christ to be a participant. And that takes effort because it's easy to come through the doors of this place week after week and shift into autopilot because we've done so for however many years and so it becomes old hat. And David reminds us, the man after God's own heart reminds us that beholding the glory and power of God in the sanctuary in the light of his presence should always move us to a worshipful response. You've got to engage heart, soul, mind, strength. He says, you've got to lift your hands. There's so much tradition tied to that in the Old Testament. Moses in the Exodus story, receiving the commandments, holding up his staff, numerous places and in the worship of the early church. People raise their hands, not just to be noticed, folks. It's an act of submission to God. They raise their hands with an expectation to receive a blessing from God and to share God's blessing with others. And we know that the disciples and Jesus and his followers and the early church elders lifted hands in prayer and practiced the laying on of hands in prayer as well. I remember as a young parent, my daughter... Her hands outstretched. I didn't think anything of it, right? But think about it. Our culture, the, the symbols with which we use our hands, right? Football. What is this? Touchdown. Thank you. Touchdown. You don't have to be a certified referee to know that this is a touchdown sign. Right? You're trying to flag somebody down on the side of the road. Your car's broke down. What are you doing? Hey, hey, I need some help over here. Thank you. Callie, help me out. You're at a, a sports game. Woohoo! No, you're into it, right? I remember coming home when Mackenzie was just learning how to walk. And I remember walking in the door, and Mackenzie, parents, you remember this with your own kids, right? They're running to you with their arms out. What are you going to say? Put your hands down, you little Pentecostal. No. You're not going to say that. You're going to pick her up and squeeze her. She is, she's surrendering herself to me to be picked up. That's what we do to God when we put our hands out in worship like David talks about here. David knows God is the only one who can fill and satisfy. I'm going to put my hands out and trusting in him that he is going to pick me up. Nobody's going to judge you for your level of expressiveness. But maybe we need to raise our hands a little bit. Verse 6. On my bed I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. David not only engages in public praise, he also seeks God in the most private of moments on his bed where he remembers and meditates on him. 
Time and time again, the Psalms call us into that, don't they? They call us in to remember and rehearse the story of God and meditate on him publicly and privately. What's David meditating on? Well, it's that unfailing love, that perpetual presence, that perpetual steadfast love. Psalm 27 verse 4, David puts it this way. The one thing I ask of the Lord, the one thing I seek most is to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, delighting in the Lord's perfections and meditating in his temple. Or Psalm 139, a psalm that is one of the most famous psalms of all. It really gives us a window into the relationship as to why David was called the man after God's own heart. Psalm 139, verses 1 through 4. O Lord, you have examined my heart. We read this at communion. And you know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I am going to say even before I say it, Lord. God understands us. He knows our thoughts. He knows our history. He knows our fears. He knows our joys. He knows our sorrows. And not in a threatening, bullish, Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God kind of way. It just reminds us that wherever we are, God is there. Skip down to verse 7. I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go down to the grave, you are there. No matter where we are. Life, death. The psalmist says we could travel from the other side of the earth to the farthest oceans. God would still be present. I don't do math, but the psalmist does this XY axis type thing. You know, on a graph. Math people, I'm trying. I'm trying here, okay? But he does it here in Psalm 139. He kind of does the vertical thing. If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I go down to the depths, the place of the dead is the word he uses there. You're there. I love the way Psalm 103 says it. From the place where the sun rises to the place where it sets is the Lord's love. And even goes further in Psalm 103, David says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has the Lord removed our transgressions from us. It can be frightening to realize we can't ever get away from God. David even talks about that further in Psalm 139. But God is always near us and God is always pursuing us wanting to help us. And that's the basis for David's meditation. He's been protected under God's wings and he's gonna rejoice. Again, he resorts to worship, to sing underneath the protection of God. And through worship, he stays close to God's heart, God's being, and he stays close to the Lord and the Lord upholds him with his right hand, that image of authority and power. Zephaniah chapter 317 talks about God's presence a different way. He says, sing Israel, shout aloud, 
The Lord our God is with you. He is a mighty warrior, strong to save. He will take great delight in you. He will comfort you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. He returns the favor. We sing to him and he desires to sing over us. Verse 8. I love this translation. My whole person has stuck to you. King David rehearses the God story in his own life and his desire to keep turning to God. using this image of sticking to him, adhering to him. Verse 9. Those who seek my life will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. That same place we talked about a moment ago in Psalm 139, that place of the dead. They will be given over to the sword and will become food for jackals, but the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. Well, we do get the picture in these closing verses that there is some kind of battle going on. Maybe he's troubled by foes. Maybe enemies are pressing on him hard. There's a physical battle, there's a spiritual battle, but in the light of God's presence, whatever that threat is, it seems minor compared to this worship that David is experiencing. His worship almost seems to him so, so, so assured of deliverance that he practically dismisses that danger in the way that psalm ends. This text, Psalm 63, you've sung it all your lives, right? Oh God, you are my God. Sing it with me. And I will ever praise you. Oh God, you are my God. And I will ever praise you. I will seek you in the morning. And I will learn to walk in your ways and step by step you'll lead me and I will follow you all of my days. What an incredible openness to God this psalm shows us. When we read it through eyes and ears that know Jesus' story and Jesus' teachings, when we see it through the call of Jesus on our lives to live the life of discipleship that denies ourselves and bears our cross, we see this picture of a relationship with God that he so desires from us. David shows us this sequence of worship and enjoying the presence of God and then he meditates and then he goes into battle armed with the presence of God. We can only become a people after God's own heart, church, by becoming a people of unending worship. We can only become a people after God's own heart if we will commit, like this text calls us, to recognizing and responding to God's transforming presence and not just letting it become a religious ritual, a religious box that you check every week. And if we become a people of unending worship, living lives that strive to be near to God's heart, lives that see people through Jesus' eyes, that love those who Jesus loves, 
we will experience a satisfaction that this world cannot offer. We have to worship and meditate before we fight because we can only fight in God's power. So we follow closely behind him and he holds us up with his right hand. And as that sequence becomes our spiritual rhythm, our lifestyle, we will see God's power and God's glory revealed to us all around. And we'll find that when we find ourselves spiritually famished and dehydrated, we will see God's power and his glory and we will be satisfied. Stand with me and the worship team comes back on the stage. I ask you this question. Are you satisfied? Are you hungry? Are you thirsty? Or do you need something more than what the world has to give? The next step for us, church, is to do this, to rehearse and remember the story of God so we can learn to fully respond to and enjoy the presence of God. Our elders and their wives are going to be around the room. Maybe that's a relationship that you're longing to begin. Maybe that's a conversation you want to have. Maybe there's something going on where you just need somebody to walk alongside you and pray with you and for you. Oh, we would love to help you with that. Here in God's presence, as we sing and as we close this morning, may we rehearse in our minds time and time again how God has shown us his faithfulness, how he has satisfied us, as the old hymn says, how he has proved himself o'er and o'er and o'er. Let's sing together.